Well, good morning, everyone. Uh, this time last week, at this very minute, almost to the exact minute, uh, we were uh, in London, and specifically, we were in this place here, which uh, you will recognize as St. Paul's Cathedral. And we had gone there for the, the morning service, this is the inside of it, which is called the Song Eucharist. Uh, we would call it communion in a bygone day. We would have called it the breaking of bread, the Lord's Supper. But Eucharist actually means Thanksgiving. And it was on the 20th Sunday after Trinity. And we were sat right where that arrow is pointed. Uh, front, front seat uh, for that particular service. Uh, quite interestingly, in one of the opening prayers, it wasn't an intercessory prayer Paul has been bringing to us. It was a penitential prayer. And in the opening penitential prayer, these were the words, most merciful God. It's from the Book of Common Prayer. Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, we confess that we have sinned in thought, word, and deed. We have not loved you with our whole heart. We have not loved our neighbors as ourselves. In your mercy, forgive what we have been. Help us to amend what we are and direct what we shall be. And then these words, that we may do justly, love mercy, and walk humbly with you, our God. Now, that registered with me for reasons that will become apparent. Now, feeling particularly religious last Sunday, not that I don't feel particularly religious every uh, Sunday, we went in the afternoon to this place, Westminster Abbey, uh, for their service at three o'clock, service of Evensong. Nothing to do with the fact that you don't pay uh, when you go to a religious service. Incidentally, if you try and visit Westminster Abbey with service times, it costs you £22 per person. But we went to, to Westminster Abbey, and it was a much grander service than we had anticipated. And this was the order of service here, because in actual fact, this one was, let me just bring it up, celebrating the feast of the dedication of Westminster Abbey in the presence of the Lord Mayor of Westminster and the mayors of the London boroughs, and this was it here. And the person who was delivering the sermon on the day was not Rowan Williams, so you can see in the pulpit. Incidentally, that is exactly where I was sitting, where the arrow is, and it looks not dissimilar to me. <laughs> A wee old man with grey hair, but, <laughs> but that's exactly where, where we're sitting during, during the service. And the, service, the sermon was conducted by the Bishop of London, who's the right reverend and right honourable Dame Sarah Mullally, DBE, Dame of the British Empire. And twice she quoted, to act justly, to love mercy, to walk humbly with your God. A three-fold cord is not easily broken. Three times in one day. Now, I have been reflecting on what I should preach on this morning. You never really switch off and you're wondering, what will I bring to the good people of, of Seagate. Sometimes it's much easier when you have a set subject to, to preach to because you preach what's in front of you. But they were both quoting from the book of Micah, a minor prophet in the Old Testament. And specifically, they were quoting from Micah chapter 6, verse 8. And I had been reflecting on what to preach. And I had an overwhelming sense particularly as I sat in Westminster Abbey, that I should share something of Micah. 
with you this morning, the man and his message. Coincidentally, Richard has mentioned a lot recently that he is reading in Micah and may preach on it in the future. So I thought I would get in first <laughs> to prepare the ground, so to speak, maybe acting a bit like a, a warm-up act. And Micah 6 verse 8 says, He has showed you, O man, I'm not sure if we can actually say that nowadays, showed you, O person, what is good and what does the Lord require of you? To act justly, to love mercy, to walk humbly with your God. And that was the verse that was mentioned in the prayer in the morning and then in the sermon in the afternoon in London last week. So I want to share a little bit about Micah, the man, and his message. Uh, the piece of clip art there is uh, from a series called Walk Through the Bible. I don't know if any of you have ever attended in your life a Walk Through the Bible seminar. I've attended a number of these when we were in Hamilton, and we, we did it a couple of times also in, in, in Riverside. Uh, the idea being to give you an overview of the whole Bible. And they tried to identify the book with the main theme of it. And this book here is Micah, because you see the microphone in the front. It's American. Okay, it's American. So you've got Micah in the front there, and the theme of Micah is encapsulated by what's going on in the dock there, because what's in the dock is the sun, and the sun represents day. So the theme of Micah is day in court. The nation has been placed in the dock. They have their day in court, and Micah, as we shall see, will bring the charges Against them. Who was Micah? He was one of the early prophets in the Old Testament. He prophesied and preached in the 8th century BC, almost 3,000 years ago. He was a contemporary of Isaiah, the great prophet Isaiah, and also Amos, the shepherd prophet, and Hosea. And some of these may be familiar uh, to you. Now, Isaiah and Micah both preached and prophesied essentially in the southern kingdom of Judea. Israel had been separated, segregated between the, the northern kingdom, which then became known as Israel, and the two tribes of Benjamin and Judah, which became the nation of Judea. And they essentially prophesied in the southern kingdom. Amos and Hosea essentially prophesied in the northern kingdom of Israel. Although, if you're uh, very precise about these things, Amos actually lived in the southern kingdom of Judea. So you can imagine how popular he was when he went up to uh, Israel to tell them how they should be living. Now, who was Micah? He was an obscure Judean hillbilly prophet from out in the sticks. He was a country boy. And he dramatically pointed out the deep flaws of the society in which he lived, particularly in the big centers such as Jerusalem and Samaria. I think of Micah, a bit like the boy in the Hans Christian Andersen story. Uh, I don't know why people read Hans Christian Andersen now, but there's a story that Hans Christian Andersen wrote called The Emperor's New Clothes. And in the story, uh, the emperor of the day was conned by a couple of shysters who basically flattered him and said, look, we've got the absolute best suit. He loved his style. He was an arbiter of fashion. We've got the very best suit that you could possibly wear. And he said, I, I, I can't see it. And they said, but it's a magic suit. It's invisible. And it's only wise people that can see this suit. Foolish people can't, can't see it. So they persuaded him to wear this suit. 
on top of nothing. So you can imagine first when he went out uh, on his uh, uh, palace uh, carriage and everybody, of course, bent to, to, to the whole uh, charade of it and believed that he was wearing this suit until a young boy who didn't know any better suddenly shouted out, and it's, it's a great song in Danny Kaye's version of the, of the emperors. He says, look at the king. The king is in the altogether, the altogether, the altogether. And he pointed the finger and he said, the king's got no clothes on. The whole thing was a charade. Now, that's what Micah did. The whole Billy guy, the little boy from the sticks, comes into the metropolis of Jerusalem and he points the finger and he says, you're, you're naked in the sight of God. And they didn't like it. He was pretty much on his own. But he was right. He was right. Don't think because you're in the minority that you're wrong. He was right. And I think the parallels between our 21st century culture here in Scotland and the UK and Micah's culture are striking and alarming. This maybe gets quite personal, but from my perspective in both cultures, both Micah's culture and our culture, there is a self-sufficient, a self-satisfied, a triumphalist, and a smug attitude that leaves no room for God and actively tries to eliminate God. Now forgive the observation, but to me it's highlighted by, in particular, the metropolitan smugness of the elites who currently seem to populate their political classes and also organizations. And I would bring into that uh, criticism, for example, the BBC and the like, and much of our other news media, who think they know better than the general public. They know better. A very current example is Sir Nick Clegg, apparently has now, as of yesterday, taken himself off to work for Facebook, an organization he formerly fiercely criticized. Nothing to do with the fact they're paying him a million pounds a year. So he's taken himself off, and the cynicism with which he will move from one political stance to another without any compunction, quite frankly, I think is shocking. Christians especially, and in particular, appear neither to be welcome or popular in this current culture in which we live. They are often up for aggressive criticism. But in contrast, sometimes the most extremes of Islamist fundamentalism have got off very lightly indeed until relatively recently when the barbaric behavior had become so extreme, especially terrorist attacks and widespread grooming scandals that our media and our politicians have been forced to speak out. Though anyone who has the temerity to say anything other than that Islam is a religion of peace and tolerance is slaughtered by the publicly, politically correct media. So do you think I'm exaggerating? Some of you may do. I don't know if you've become aware of this campaign. In the last two weeks, these posters have started appearing in Scotland. Placed 
in our towns and cities by the Scottish Government in partnership with Police Scotland under the banner OneScotland.org. And the simple one on the left there you see appearing in the end of a bus shelter. Dear bigots, you can't spread your religious hate here. End of sermon, yours, Scotland. Now who's that targeted at? There is a more developed one. Dear bigots, division seems to be what you believe in. We don't want your religious hate on our buses. Who is it that sometimes put texts on buses? For God so loved the world and the like. We don't want your religious hate on our buses, on our streets, in our communities. We don't want you spreading your intolerance or making people's lives a misery because of their religious dress. You may not have faith in respect and love, but we do. That's why if we see or hear your hate, we're reporting you. End of sermon. Amen. This is in our land. Christian Concern interestingly commented online, the Scottish government and the Scottish police are running a hate crime awareness campaign by putting up various posters addressed to bigots, which I've read, homophobes, which I haven't, transphobes and others. Tim Depp discusses the issues involved looking at what is a hate crime, a hate incident and who do these posters are addressed to. He concludes that the worst of these posters constitutes state anti-Christian propaganda, which is intended to intimidate and threaten Christians. He argues that this is how the concept of political correctness starts to validate the concept of a political crime. It's happening very quickly in our society. So the implications, does this mean that I or others in a similar position Preaching, promoting what we believe the Bible teaches are guilty of hate crime. Remember what they said, you may not have faith and respect and love, but we do. That's why if we see or hear your hate, we're reporting you. End of sermon. Is the logical next step that the politically correct thought police who are behind all of this start attending our services and arresting those like me? who preach a biblical message. Uh, David Robertson, the renowned minister of St. Peter's Free Church of Scotland in Dundee, Robert Murray McShane's church, who is a, a, a serious blogger, he reported Police Scotland to themselves. He reported Police Scotland to Police Scotland for hate crime against Christians. And the answer, if you Google it, was, the answer you see was, was pathetic. Now, remind you, this is Scotland we are speaking about. It's not Saudi Arabia or Russia or Turkey or South Korea. Our nation, maybe some of the younger ones don't know this, but our nation was formerly known as Bible-loving Scotland. And now there is a serious attempt to silence the gospel message because it's perceived as hate crime. It was the same in Micah's day, 3,000 years ago. He wasn't popular either. Neither was his message. Prophets tended not to be popular. So they say, don't preach. 
Don't preach at us. <laughs> we'll convict you of hate crime. Don't preach such stuff. Micah 2 verse 6. Nothing bad will happen to us. Uh, those of you who use the message translation will sometimes find the very helpful notes that Eugene Peterson writes at the beginning of each book. Sadly, I don't know whether you, you know or not, Eugene Peterson has just been admitted to hospice care this very week, this great man of God. His body may be failing, but his words ring out. And listen to these words that he wrote about the role of the prophets. The prophets purge our imaginations of this world's assumptions on how life is lived and what counts in life. Over and over again, God the Holy Spirit uses these prophets to, please note this, separate his people from the cultures in which they live. Putting them back on the path of simple faith and obedience and worship in defiance of all that the world admires and rewards. Prophets train us in discerning the difference between the ways of the world and the ways of the gospel, keeping us present to the presence of God. He goes on. We don't read very many pages into the prophets before realizing there was nothing easy going about them. Prophets were not popular figures. They never achieved celebrity status. They were decidedly uncongenial to the temperaments and dispositions of the people with whom they lived. And the centuries have not mellowed them. It's understandable that we should have a difficult time coming to terms with them. They aren't particularly sensitive to our feelings. They have very modest, as we would say, relationship skills. Now, as I get older, I'm becoming more and more interested in the prophetic books of the Old Testament and more and more sympathetic to the role of the prophet. Maybe I'm just becoming a grumpy old man. Peterson goes on and says this, we like leaders, especially religious leaders, to understand our problems. Come alongside us, is our idiom for it. Leaders with a touch of glamour. Leaders who look good on posters and on television. The hard rock reality is that prophets don't fit into our way of life. And then this devastating critique for a people who are accustomed to fitting God into their lives, or as we like to say, making room for God, the prophets are hard to take and easy to dismiss. The God of whom the prophets speak is far too large to fit into our lives. If we want anything to do with God, we have to fit into him. Now that's crucial. We want to add God to our lives as a kind of fashion accessory. That is not the God of the Bible. We have to fit in to God's plan, God's purposes, God's way. We were singing that in, in our opening worship, blessed be your name. When things are going well, also when things are going badly. I don't really have time to, to go on here. I'm going to be totally out of time before you even get to Micah. But basically the prophets were working to get the people to accept a couple of things. To accept the concept of God's judgment for their good. So they would change. They would repent and embrace God's salvation. And secondly, the prophets worked to get people who were beaten down and oppressed to open themselves up to the hope of God's future for them. 
He says, in the wreckage of exile and death and humiliation and sin, the prophet ignited hope, opening lives to the new work of salvation that God is about at all times and everywhere. And that message has not changed and does not change. And that is the message that we have to proclaim in current 21st century Scotland and the UK. In spite of the posters and telephone boxes and the like that try to do us down. Now, at the very heart of Micah, I believe, is this idea here. For an Orthodox worshipping Jew of the time of Micah, these things were very important. The little thing on the left on the, the doorpost of the house is called a mezuzah. And uh, the little boxes worn on the head and the arm of the, the young man on the right are called tefillin or phylacteries. Now, both of these little boxes contain something. It was a little scroll, and that little scroll is called the Shema. The Shema. Shema is a Hebrew word for hear, listen. Now, observant Jews consider the Shema to be the most important part of the prayer service in Judaism. They would recite it twice daily. It was traditional for Jews to recite the Shema on their deathbed. And to teach it to their children, the last thing before they went to sleep at night. So what was the Shema? Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Hear, Shema, hear, Shema. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength. These commandments that I give you today are to be on your hearts. That's why they, they wound it round their arm. And the little box was adjacent to the heart. They have to be in your heart. These commandments I give you today are to be in your hearts. Impress them on your children. Talk about them when you sit at home, when you walk along the road, when you lie down, when you get up. Tie them as symbols on your hands and bind them on your foreheads. The Shema in our hearts and in our heads. Write them on the door frames of your houses and on your gates. What are they being taught here in this most important commandment? That love for God and worship of God had to be in their head, their heart, and their home. And that was absolutely paramount. Now, in the prophecy of Micah, Micah preaches three sermons. There's seven chapters in the book, and Micah preaches three sermons. And each of these sermons begins with the same word. Shema. 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 Can you imagine the impact of that in his day? Chapter 1, verse 2. Chapter 3, verse 1. Chapter 6, verse 1. Shema. So here is Micah, the man, and his message. And I briefly want to just explain uh, some of the main thrust of his message from uh, chapter 6 here, his third sermon. And he says this. Listen. Here. Shema. To what the Lord says, stand up, plead my case before the mountains. Let the hills hear what you have to say. Hear you mountains, the Lord's accusation. Listen, you everlasting foundations of the earth. For the Lord has a case against his people. He is lodging a charge against Israel. This is the court scene. My people, says God, what have I done to you? How have I burdened you? Answer me. I brought you up out of Egypt and redeemed you from the land of slavery. I sent Moses to lead you, also Aaron and Miriam. My people, remember what Balak, king of Moab, plotted and what Balaam, son of Beor, answered. 
Remember your journey from Shittim to Gilgal, that you may know the righteous acts of the Lord. With what shall I come before the Lord and bow down before the exalted God? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, with ten thousand rivers of olive oil? Shall I offer my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? He has shown you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? To act justly, to love mercy, to walk humbly with your God. Now the nation is in the dock. I don't have time to expand the historical situation. But very shortly, the northern kingdom of Israel would be totally engulfed by the Assyrians and would cease to exist as a nation forever. And the warning to the southern kingdom was the same fate would befall them. And it didn't happen for over 100 years when finally the Babylonians came and took them into exile. But they did not listen to the message any more than sometimes the metropolitan elites of our society do not listen to the message. And here is what Micah says. Listen to what the Lord says. Stand up, plead my case before the mountains. Now here we've got the, the, the court scene here. And, and God is there pressing the charges. And who are the jury? The jury are the mountains. God calls the mountains as the jury. Why does he call them? You everlasting foundations of the earth. Because the mountains are totally reliable. You can't fix this jury. You can't bribe them. And he's lodging a charge against Israel. And the mountains are there. They're reliable. Why? Because they've been around forever. And then Micah starts reading out the charge sheet against them. And first of all, he brings their religious charges. My people, God had this covenant relationship with them. What have I done to you? How have I burdened you? Answer me. Because they had abandoned the true God and were worshipping false gods. Now this was very evident in their pagan worship. Chapter 1 verse 7 of Micah says this, All her idols... Now, this was the, the chosen people of God who had a personal covenant with God, but were worshipping idols. All her idols will be broken to pieces. All her temple gifts will be burned with fire. I will destroy all her images. And then this appalling statement. Since she gathered her gifts from the wages of prostitutes, as the wages of prostitutes, they will again be used. So what's going on here? What is the accusation? Moral decline. What was going on in Judea at this time was an astonishing thing called temple prostitution, where people believed if they engaged in a heterosexual or homosexual act in the temple, that this somehow or other would be acceptable to God. So what was God given as pure and sacred between a husband and wife, outlined very clearly in the Ten Commandments, had been corrupted and commercialized. Why? Because sex sells. It did in Micah's time. Does it sound familiar? In our time. This was being sanctioned by the religious leaders in Micah's day. I invite you just to reflect briefly on the dramatic changes in sexual morality in our country over the last few years. I wondered as I was preparing this what would the Scottish government and police Scotland do with a Micah today? 
someone who has the temerity to challenge and call out the establishment figures. And then from the religious charges, he moves to the political, though in Judea, political and religious were very closely entwined. And here we have corrupt political leaders and compromised religious leaders, priests and prophets. Micah chapter 3, verse 11. Hear this, you leaders of Jacob, you rulers of Israel, who despise justice and distort all that is right, to build Zion with bloodshed and Jerusalem with wickedness. Her leaders judge for a bribe. Her priests teach for a price. Her prophets tell fortunes for money. Yet they look for the Lord's support and say, Is not the Lord among us? No disaster will come upon us. The church in Micah's day had lost its prophetic voice to speak out. And if a church cannot speak out on behalf of God and his truth, who can? That's a huge challenge to us today. A huge challenge for us as Christians today. Religious charges, political charges, and this led to the terrible social consequences, social charges of an unfair, unequal, and unjust society, characterized by the little bit of clip out there of dishonest scales and false weights. Uh, Micah 6, verse 11, Shall I acquit someone with dishonest scales with a bag of false weights? Uh, there is a, a government department called Weights and Measures. They used to have an exact uh, length of a yard or a meter stick. So they, they could go to any establishment. They had exact uh, weights and poundages. Uh, now kilograms, I would imagine, where they could go. And they could measure the, the weights being used by the establishment against their weights. Because obviously some of the people were using light weights or heavy weights, whichever way they, they, they wanted to, to benefit. Now in our day, how does it happen? Well, it all happens on the internet, doesn't it? You know, and interest rates are fixed here, there, and everywhere. Now, some of you won't remember this, but perhaps those in, in the, the banking industry may, may remember it, like likes of Gavin and, and the likes, where, where a rate called LIBOR rates were fixed. And these were the rates that were agreed between banking establishments. And they were fixed just a tiny, tiny little amount, but it enriched a few massively to the detriment of the general public. And we think of benefits, controversies, and payday loans with scandalous rates of interest. We think of the whole Volkswagen emissions scandal to try and sell more and more cars. This is the equivalent of what was going on in Micah's day. And Micah's calling them out, and he's pointing the finger in these religious charges, political charges, and social charges. And his message is judgment is coming. Judgment is coming, but they didn't listen. Don't preach such stuff. Nothing bad will happen to us. So it's a pretty bleak picture. And then on top of that, Micah reminds them of their obligations to God and to each other, to love God, to love their neighbor as himself, to act justly, to love mercy, to walk humbly with your God. But here is the harsh reality. That is what they had to do. That is what we have to do. But the harsh reality is this. History has shown repeatedly and irrefutably that without God, that is impossible. That is impossible to act justly, to love mercy, to walk humbly 
the people that came to Jesus, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What does the law say? Oh, I've done all that. Well, go sell all that you have, give to, give to the poor. What does the law say? Love the Lord your God with all your heart. Yes, and your neighbor as yourself. Go and, go and do this. Who is my neighbor? Why, why, does, why does the Lord put that back on them? To basically show they are incapable of fulfilling what they are actually stating. So in Micah, we not only learn what we are supposed to do, we learn what God does. And this is wonderful. Because in the two great events of history, Christmas and Easter, the incarnation of Jesus Christ and the passion of Jesus Christ on the cross, Micah prof prophetically highlights these in the chapter before and the chapter after the one we've read, chapter 6. In chapter 5 and in chapter 6. Chapter 6 tells us how we are to behave. Chapter 5 and chapter 7 tell us what God has done. Here's what chapter 5 says. But you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, are only a small village in Judah. Yet a ruler of Israel will come from you, one whose origins are from the distant past. He will stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God, and they will live securely. For then his greatness will reach to the ends of the earth. And verse 5, And he will be our peace. This was the message of Micah. It's the message of the crib. It's the message of the incarnation. It's the amazing truth that Micah prophesied all these years ago that God comes to us. God comes to us. But sadly, the crib alone does not save. Our faith is not only a Christmas faith, it is also an Easter faith. The gospel is not only about the crib, but also supremely about the cross. And where is the cross prefigured in Micah? In chapter 7, Micah says in the closing thoughts, Who is a God like you who pardons sin and forgives the transgression of the remnant of his inheritance? You do not stay angry forever, but delight to show mercy. That's the God we believe in, not this intolerant deity. You will again have compassion on us. You will tread our sins underfoot and hurl all our iniquities into the depths of the sea. So if Micah 5 is about a God who comes to us, chapter 7 is about a God who dies for us in order to forgive us. Now that is the message of Micah. It's a message that his nation needed to hear, but they didn't listen. And it ended in judgment and exile. It's a message I passionately believe that Scotland needs to hear. And we as the church of God and as Christians need to hear this message. To rediscover a courage in God and a confidence in God's word that we can take the message out into the society and culture which even at the behest of our government doesn't want to hear that message. So are we going to bow to that? Are we going to be silenced by this because of the fear of being accused of being a bigot? Now by all means we observe every kind of Christian courtesy but not at the expense of denying our faith in Jesus Christ. Micah's a great little book. You should go home and read it. It's wonderful. Uh, and I have to say, Micah's my kind of guy. I, I love him. And I, hope, I do hope Richard will preach on Micah in the future here at Seagate. 
because I'm sure it would be both a challenge and a blessing to us as a church. Let's ask God's blessing. Father, we bow in your presence, the God of eternity, the God overall blessed forever, yet the God who in the person of your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, came to us, to that tiny little village of, of Bethlehem. And we thank you, Lord, that you came to save us. And that salvation would be accomplished on the cross of Calvary. And therefore we can say, who is a pardoning God like you, or who has grace so rich and free? Lord, help us as Christians, help us as churches to recover our confidence in you and our confidence in your word. Embolden us, Lord, by your Holy Spirit. Fire our passions for you and for your word and for the desire to see our communities reached with the gospel of the good news of Jesus Christ. Help us so to do, we pray, for we ask this in your name. Amen. Amen.